0: Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, we've got another... A teaser of Everyday Theology for our next season coming up, and that means that it's just me, it's Chris. We're just going to have a conversation and enjoy some topic. We've got some things that have kind of been brewing within kind of Christian culture that we decided we're going to talk about for this one. But Chris, thanks for being here, always. I mean, I, I say thanks for being here as if you're a guest, but you're not a guest anymore. So i'm gonna ta- i'm gonna stop telling you thanks i'll just put it that way but you're here so yeah, yeah, yeah you're here
1: i'm glad to be good to see you again
0: um yeah it feels like it's been a while you know we've both been going through some life transitions but you know things are settling which is great as we get into season three uh i want to talk about something that i've, I've had some conversations around and there's it kind of comes and goes in christian culture but it's a it's a thing that almost consistently lingers behind the scenes for a good portion of of christian community regardless of tradition it seems to be a thing that's always there and partially i want to have this conversation and it's very selfish because i'm in the middle of writing a piece on this and i'm going well it's not coming out the writing is not happening the way i want it to so you know, if I just talk to Chris about it, it'll all of a become much better than it would have if I would have just tried to write it myself. So uh, today, what I want to really talk about is this thing called doubt. Mm-hmm. What we think about doubt, how we talk about doubt, is doubt a sin, is doubt going to destroy your faith? You know, what are all the different ways that we can talk about it? And and I'll tell you, Chris, the reason why it's so important for me is, you know, I think we all in our if if you are a Christian and have gone through any kind of amount of a Christian journey, there's been a time or a season that you've confronted some amount of doubt about various different things. And there are a ton of different ways to approach that doubt. And yet there's not a lot of good conversation on how to approach it well and how to kind of deal with it well. And that's something that I've It's become a passion project for me to some degree because of the amount of really bad ways to talk about it that have actually really hurt people. Uh, I think those are a bit more uh, prevalent than the good ways to approach it. And so I'm just going to throw a question out there to you to start, even though this is a project I've been writing on, it's always helpful for me to ask questions. And it's a really, really basic question. What do you think about doubt, Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's hard to get clear about it because of, there's so much noise, right? I mean, I think at the risk of oversimplification, I think we can start here, kind of in "quote unquote" conservative circles. Doubt is, of course, sin, and a sign <laughs> that you've you've lost what's essential. You're you're, you're betraying God. You're you're setting yourself up for misery and and maybe eternal misery. I mean, so doubt in those circles is something you, you do not want to admit. And right. in some ways, in some of those circles, you cannot admit it. To admit it is to already be cast out, right? I mean, if you're going to admit those doubts, at least if they're, if they're quote-unquote serious doubts, then you're already lost, right? You're, you're already gone. Right. And, now, and a lot of
0: times it's because it's couched as some kind of sickness or disease, right? Like oh, absolutely. faith is sick,
1: like something's wrong. You just need to be cured, right? Right. That, well, yeah. And, and often when people are struggling with that in those circles, they'll talk about it in terms like that themselves, right? That's not just necessary. that's not always imposed on people. Sometimes that's the language they choose to describe their own experience, you know, that my faith is weakening or I'm losing my faith and doubt gets construed in those terms in other circles. And I'm not in these circles as much, but I've been around it enough to see that there are some times in which people can kind of talk about doubt in ways that I think suggest that doubt is somehow sexy, right? That, that doubt is, <laughs> right. You, you want to doubt, right? You can kind of, kind of, there's, at least in the Twitter sphere, there are some people who seem to wear their doubts as a kind of proof that they're legit, right? Yeah, Which I think a is, of is
0: honor almost, right? Yeah. yeah. Or,
1: Which I think is, is silly.
0: It's a caricature, right? Or even to say I'm better than you because I doubt.
1: Yeah, I'm and, and because because our so. churches, right, and because our churches kind of welcome doubts and so on. I mean there's there's just a lot of noise and a lot of confusion. I think I think in order to kind of clarify that the best we can, I think it's important to make a distinction between what we might call the sin of doubt, that's the you know so like Thomas Aquinas will talk about unbelief as a sin. Right. And what I think most people you and I know are talking about when they talk about experiencing doubt. I mean frankly, I think most of what we're talking about when we talk about doubt really is just questions about our beliefs or a sense that our confidence in our beliefs are weakening, Right. So I I would want to make a distinction between doubt, which I, I would follow Aquinas and others here that doubt insofar as it's something wrong, doubt is prideful, willful resistance against the truth where you, yeah, You refuse to be taught. You will not learn, even though you're given every chance to do. I think it's really hard to doubt in that way, right? Like in terms of as a sin, it's actually hard to do. You have to set out to actively resist the truth. I don't think we just fall into it
0: so easily. Which already, see, already you've said something that now my head's going, well, what about this? Right? Because... To, to couch it in the way that Aquinas does, that it is a willful resistance to truth, inherently means that doubt, when we talk about doubt in that way, it's not just meaning doubt as it relates to matters of faith, but doubt as it relates to any matter of life.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a relation to God, right? It's, it's not just... And so, like, I think we have to make a distinction between beliefs and our confidence in our beliefs and faith, right? So faith is, and faith and the faith, right? So faith is given to us. I mean, that's a gift of God. You can't actually lose your faith. You didn't source it. I mean, I didn't give myself <laughs> faith and I can't take it away from myself.
0: Which, which to clarify for people, because sometimes I think here you can't lose your faith. Some people go, Oh, does that mean I can't lose my salvation? And we're, these are different things. Oh right? yeah.
1: That's a different, that's a different conversation, right? But
0: which you would not say, you can't lose your salvation, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm not. I mean, that's all. That's an entire. Yeah. I think that's often a dead end argument too. Although I'm not advocating for right. the idea that you can lose your salvation or that you can't lose your salvation, but I'm simply saying scripture, like faith as a virtue, like so. Paul talks about God has given to everyone the measure of faith, and Ephesians says, you know, we by grace we've been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. Right is the gift of God, right? So Christian theology here, and this is true whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, whether you're Calvinist or Wesleyan, Armenian, you believe that faith is something God gives to us. Now we have to steward it well. We have to yield to, and this is where that issue of unbelief as pride and stubborn resistance comes in. But faith is not something I give myself, right? That's that's right. a gift of God. Then the faith is the truth that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, right? This is the gospel. This is what James calls the faith once delivered to the saints. So those things are not, they don't, they're not sourced in me, right? Where this starts to bear on my personal spirituality is my personal beliefs about the faith My personal grasp, intellectual grasp of my beliefs about the faith. Right. And my kind of affective confidence in my grasp of my beliefs about the faith. So the point is, in order to kind of sin in a classical way by doubting, I would have to, again, actively resist the truth or go out of my way to try to prove that the faith is wrong. Like, it's not doubt for me to to have questions about my understanding of my beliefs or to question my beliefs about the faith. In fact, I think that's essential. That's just part of growing. That's just part of maturity and and maturation. So I think we've set up our cultures, and this is a sign of how how unhealthy they are, if not altogether toxic, that... We, we don't allow for actual growth. We identify any question at all as a challenge against the truth. Mm-hmm. When in fact, yep. that's how you open up to the truth. Right. right. There's that line in George MacDonald about doubt in the sense of genuine questions that emerge as you wrestle with the truth. That, the doubt is the hammer, he says, that shatters the glass and lets in the pure light. Right. So he, what he's imaging there is that we've got a kind of filtered glass, an, an imagination that's keeping the truth of God from getting to us. And it's actually our doubts that help us start to realize the questions we're asking are not about God. They're about what we've been told about God. Right,
0: which is a which is a really clear difference. Oh my gosh, absolutely. But the hard part is it's not couched that way uh, yeah. for a lot of our conversations. It also reminds me of George MacDonald's um book lilith right yeah, absolutely uh, where, where he has this like beautiful picture i teach about it in hermeneutics when i teach hermeneutics you know mm-hmm. this idea of there's this main character sees this this book in the form of a butterfly coming down at him and all he wants to do is grasp it and so he reaches out and it's as if this thing had made itself kind of given over to the main character, so he's able to actually grab it. And as soon as he grabs it, it becomes a dead wooden, like a, a stick, essentially, right? And this recognition that when we hold on to something as if we have it, and it is it is something for us to own, it has automatically died.
1: That's right. And
0: even the character recognizes this. And what does the character do? Tries to throw it back in the air to try and kind of see if it's going to come back to life. And all it does is just fall back to the ground. Because at that point, it's almost too late back to his other point of the hammer that shatters the glass. That's that's the next necessary step. I think the reason why this conversation for me is always so vital is because I, I've seen a generation, me included, of people who have been taught this this dichotomic view of faith. That when we talk about faith, what we're talking about is a correct set of a small list of beliefs, sometimes a large list of beliefs, right? Depending on kind of which church denomination or grouping that you've come from, some have a smaller list of what they would call their essentials, and others have a list a mile long of what they call essentials. And basically they're taught that if you are to have a relationship with Christ, you have to believe these things yeah. and you have to believe them enough. In fact, th- there was a, a recent book that um, I won't say who, and in fact, I'm, this is a part of my dissertation at now at this point, now I'm just giving out something uh, that I've written, but um who has tried to, who recognize the problem of this, this understanding of faith, uh, belief in or belief that God is something, God will do something. God did something where they said, Hey, hey I want to kind of transition this idea, uh, to recognize that faith probably looks more like allegiance. And, Though yet, their argument still was based on, but you still have to hold to these, I think seven or eight things that the Gospels and Paul talk about, and here's the list. And in order to have faith, you have to believe them enough. What is enough? Well, we don't know. We don't know what enough is, but you just have to do it. To me, that's very unsatisfactory and it doesn't get away from the problem because what happens is when we have a faith that's based on this list of beliefs that you have to hold in a certain way, usually through a certain denominations, theological lens of holding those beliefs, and that's required to have relationship with Christ to that's required to have salvation. That's required. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing that those things, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't often hear pastors saying you have to have the right beliefs to be saved, but I do often hear in order to be a part of this, you need to believe rightly, Mm -hmm. which is just the opposite way of saying the same thing. Right? Like, so although we say you need relationship with, with christ first well how do you get that well well, you have to have right faith which means you have to have right beliefs it always kind of goes back to this thing and so doubt becomes this this thing that starts pulling at the thread of what we think is salvation and relationship with god yeah yeah so so i think with doubt comes a lot of fear because if i pull on that thread all of a sudden maybe I don't have a relationship
1: with God. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe, you know, X, Y, or Z. There's so much that is confused in that, right? Like, that I think we need to kind of tease apart. So another distinction I would want to make that I think, it's not original to me. I mean, I think this is a, a traditional distinction to make, but one that's lost on us, meaning most of the people that are in my circles day to day. Between salvation and the vocation of christian ministry so salvation is ultimately about my relation to god my openness to the truth and right. there's a mystery around that i mean most of most of the people i know would admit that right but there's a there's a way in which god works with people according to the life they have been given right so uh, the people you know are academics <laughs> so just well, kidding. I don't know that that's true, but a lot of them are. Yes, but even but even amongst people who are not, I mean, here I'm talking about family, people that are, you know, pastoring. I think there's a general sense that you know, if people love the truth, if they love God, even if their faith is not exactly right, God is merciful and their hearts are open. All that kind of thing, right? Right. There's a, there's a kind there's room there, but it often gets really confusing what's the relationship between my kind of personal relation to God and my responsibility to speak to my neighbors about the gospel to to share the truth with them and I think we we all, there's a lot of double speak there's a lot of contradiction and incoherence in the way we handle all that I think a lot of us kind of hold contradictory beliefs and don't know that they're in contradiction about that. But I think just to kind of start to clarify, just to move some stuff around to create some clarity, I think we need to make a distinction between faith as openness to God, as readiness to yield to God, as desire for God. So faith in the in the barest sense as I'm open to God being God in my life. Yeah, right? that, that just basic openness, readiness to be saved, readiness to be led and delivered like if that's what we mean by faith that to resist that of course would be destructive right so if if we're going to talk about doubt as the refusal to be open to god being god then i think we should talk about it as something that's destructive right that will harm us yep so that but that's rarely what people mean by (laughs) right in fact i mean incredibly rarely is that what people mean by doubt they often confuse just legitimate questions or uncertainties for that, but that's important not, it's important not to confuse them. So the other thing I want to say is that I do think that our beliefs matter in terms of how well do we talk to our neighbors about who God is and what God wants and yeah. what picture says, right? But that's to me, not so much about salvation as it is about vocation. Right. It's not so much about, you know, am I going to be in heaven or hell in the end as am I going to bring peace and goodness and justice into the lives of my neighbor? Or am I going to bring confusion and chaos and pain through yeah. what I say? So we need to think about faiths or the faith delivered to us and beliefs at that level. Not so much how is that going to determine my ultimate salvation or damnation. right? But yep. – what are the consequences for what I believe for my neighbor, for my children, for the person I work with and so on. Right. So if I, I think we need to make that kind of fundamental distinction. Then I think we need to make a distinction between what it is that the Christian tradition says, what I'm calling the faith once delivered and the beliefs my church has given me about those things. Yep. And then my personal grasp of those beliefs about that faith. And, and all three of those levels are important, right? They are, right. Because it, let's say we believe that the church, God is revealed to the church that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, in the churches that I've grown up with, there's a general belief in the Trinity, but it's it's mostly rote. There's no deep understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And in fact, if you ask, you'll
0: most often get a heretical view. No, absolutely. And that's what I was about to say. And oh, if sorry. i sorry. I didn't mean to steal it, any thunder. No, no, no,
1: no, no. That's exactly right. If you push for, okay, explain it to me. The explanation you get is not at all in keeping with the, the faith once delivered. Right. And of course, at some level, most of our churches, most of the Christians in our lives would say, well, your salvation shouldn't depend on whether or not you can explain the Trinity, but then they'll turn right back around and say, but your salvation does depend on what you say about the inspiration of scripture or salvation or whether or not you can lose your salvation. Yeah.
0: I I think of, I think of a few other topics that just come quickly to the top of my head, right? Things, basic statements that aren't as maybe complicated as explaining the Trinity, the claim Jesus being born of a virgin, Mm -hmm. what, the faith what the, the the tradition of the church has meant by that especially in the 1st and 2nd centuries varies drastically from the way the church talks about it drastically yeah, our, towards yeah, our, the way that we yeah the church today and the way that we talk about it and and I should probably say protestant evangelical churches the way they talk about it and the way that we hold to it same thing with Jesus being the word right yeah. and in terms of this this Platonic Logos philosophy, right? That for some people, when I say those three words, listening to the podcast are like, oh no, let's not go there. And like, don't worry, we're not, right? But, but we don't understand that that's an argument from the early church that's vastly different from the way that we talk about it as the church today, and then how people believe. And once you go down those three layers, you realize that the statements that we often make are very misconstrued from the way that they were said, And if that's the case, if we really, really want to hold to some kind of notion that the right beliefs equal right relationship or equal salvation, then we can kind of make the statement that most of the church is screwed.
1: Oh, no, we absolutely have to make that statement, right? Because, like, there's not... At the level of personal intellectual grasp, people are not orthodox. Right. <laughs> like they're just they're just not. So yeah, that's absolutely right. Now I, I think, but this is where I'm saying we hold a bundle of ideas together that don't actually cohere, right? Yes. So if, yeah. So when you push this conversation, people will shift its It's almost like Mercury, right? Like they they'll say one thing that seems to suggest, yeah, they very much do believe that your beliefs are what determine your salvation. But if you press that, then they'll shift to something more like, well, it's really the intensity of your, like how intensely you, vote, <laughs> right. like, or whether or not it's authentic or not, of course. And there's just no way for us to make good judgments about what is enough. Right? And
0: it's usually an ever, like you're saying, it's an ever shifting paradigm. It's never shifting kind of rule, but always in the sense of making us feel better that we do actually have faith by whatever measure that we can measure it by.
1: Well, better or worse. I mean, I think some people, yes, their instinct is how do I calm myself? But there are a whole lot of us who I think our instincts are almost the opposite. Like we, we end up, we worry ourselves into place of crisis, even though really we're just asking good questions, right? There's nothing to be afraid of there. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times in my life people I love, people I care for, they feel like they're in a crisis of faith. But really, all they're doing is asking theological questions that are being met by people who are afraid of them, and the fear is actually being generated by the fact that people don't know how to answer those questions. Questions yeah. about hell, for instance, or questions about uh, the you know how do I know that I'm saved, or what's going to happen to my children, you know if they're if they're away from the Lord and they die, that kind of thing. I mean, those kind of deep existential questions. A lot of people are terrified. And when they try to ask what are perfectly legitimate questions to ask, they're met with resistance, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Yeah. There's, there's just a lot of confusion. I mean, our our culture here, the kind of broad American evangelical culture, we deal in simplicities. And we not only do we not do nuance well, we're <laughs> allergic to nuance. <laughs> like we literally have a rash when someone brings up distinction. Right, so. Right. It makes thinking clearly or talking clearly about things like this so, so, so hard when it shouldn't be. Because really, these distinctions are relatively easy to grasp. It just takes a little bit of time and you can start to see, oh yeah, well, there's clearly a distinction between resisting the truth willfully and having questions that you can't resolve for yourself. You know, I, I, I know a couple of years ago, now, maybe three years, uh, there was a, a worship leader, I think it was Hillsong, but it might have been Passion, I can't remember. A kind of messy, famous, messy divorce with the faith. And oh, yeah. when he was asked, like, you know, what, what do you mean, why did you lose your faith? I mean, essentially, he just lists like three or four theological questions, which were dealt with, you know, Two thousand years ago, <laughs> like, like, there's, like, there. Not only are there answers for them, they're some of the first questions the church has answered. Yeah, but not in his community. Like in his community, you could not even ask questions right. that basic about, you know, if God is good, why is there evil, or if God is good, why is there an eternal hell that most people end up? I mean, those are incredibly basic questions. That the church has has long ago grappled with and provided wise responses to, and because we're cut off from all of that wisdom, yeah, we're kind of at the mercy of our own ignorance. And and like you said, a lot of those questions have not not perfect,
0: but really really well thought out answers that would actually provide a lot more satisfactory responses. To the situations going on today that those questions are being asked Absolutely. and our, our road answers that we give today that oh, are typical yeah. ones that push people out of the church not bring them back in, right? I, I love the fact, that, so if I kind of make, make those three distinctions again just to kind of go back there, right? This idea of the faith, this large thing, this openness to God, this being at rest with God um, and, then, and then the faith as as or not the faith, but just faith as in uh, beliefs and then faith as in how we how we go about in our understanding and dealing with our neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. E- engagement within the world and the answers that we have in order to best engage with the world. You know, I what I really like and and, and one of the reasons why I kind of went down this path years ago anyways and and making this a point of study for myself is to recognize, you know, reading some people who have dealt with this, right? I mean, this has been dealt with forever, right? Again, the same thing, like you're saying. We can go back to, as a pseudo-Dionysius and Gregory of, of Nyssa, and so many people have, um, Teresa of Avila, have really talked about doubt oh, well. and, yeah. and really engaged with it. But for me, it was Paul Tillich who first, when I, just the simplest statement of saying that that doubt is inherent in faith. And the faith that he was talking about was really just our beliefs, what we believe about God. That if we call that faith, then doubt will always be inherent in it because God is always beyond perfect comprehension. Right? And totally. so if God is beyond perfect comprehension, there will always be doubt. That resides as a part of our belief system, because we're always going to have to be dealing with the questions, something that Gregory of Nyssa, even though it's argued, I like the argument, I think it's a stronger argument to say that he talks about this idea of going into darkness, that... In our culture, when we hear the term darkness, we usually think negative, we think bad, Mm -hmm. um, and there are some racial biases to that as well. Actually, there's been a lot of study on the, the language that we use of darkness and light and how we affect that towards even people and races, but he uses it as the sense of going, look, the farther you go into God, the farther you go into relationality with God into your beliefs of God, the more you'll find yourself going into darkness, the inability to grasp who God is, but done well, the farther you go in, the farther you're at peace, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which is very opposite of the way that we think about doubt today, which is if I open myself up to those questions about the things that we think about God in search of better answers that may be out there, maybe from, you know, 18, 1,900 years ago, or better answers that are out there from today, from a theologian who's thinking about it and writing today, we we don't allow ourselves to kind of open ourselves up to the reality that if I ask these questions, I could actually get better answers that may suffice for a time that I'll have to revisit again. Yeah. And what I've found, too, is there's quite a few people, usually those who kind of fit within a modernistic framework. So your baby boomers, and, and I don't mean to point fingers, but you know, they kind of grew up within that modernistic framework that might come to the conclusion of, well, I studied this 30 years ago. I came to my conclusions. Those are my conclusions. They still exist. There's nothing new to be said about this topic. So why are we talking about it? Here's your answer. And that never suffices when we talk about this, this statement that Tillich said again, yeah. In the church, we're reformed, meaning where we look at our beliefs, we recognize that they're flawed, and we are always reforming. We're always fixing them. We're always working on them. We're always talking about them, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to make some kind of artificial distinction here, but I do want to reinforce this difference between kind of the the orientation of my heart, the openness of my heart to God, my readiness to let God be God. And teachings, doctrines, beliefs right. right We've right. got to keep that clear. Yes. and ultimately salvation is about my heart responding to who God actually is. And what Dionysius is describing is a movement into the reality of God that takes us further than theology can go right that that prayer can go beyond theology's reach. And my communion with God as he is exceeds my communion with my ideas about God as he is. Right, so yeah. that's, that's critical difference. My ideas about God matter, but my ideas about God matter less than what has been revealed. So like, part of the problem with the, the construal here is... You know, what you just said about someone who said, you know, I settled my beliefs about this long ago. Well, your beliefs don't literally do not matter. <laughs> like, they're, 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 at that level, they're beside the point. They're your opinions. <laughs> nothing, literally nothing, depends upon that. They're, they're, we might make a distinction between kind of capital T theology and lowercase T theology. So, capital T theology is what the church has said about what God has revealed. That's Trinity. Jesus is God. Scripture is authoritative. God will make all things right. Whatever that is, there's revelation. There's a lot at stake there, but my personal construal of that is precisely that. It's my personal construal of that. It matters only insofar as my witness, my lowercase t theology, helps people find the capital T theology in ways that bear witness to the God who's at work in people's lives so that what we're saying about God as a church is as true as it can be to who God actually is and who people actually are and what's actually happening in the world. But the the thought that my salvation or anyone else's salvation depends upon my theology, lowercase T I mean, that's just idolatry. That's absurd, right? Like that. And that's, I don't want that, right? Neither should anyone else want that, right? Like that, that, those beliefs and now I'm not even talking about how well I understand it. I mean this is another problem we have in our cultures in which people think they hold beliefs they don't actually even understand. Right? Like so it's it's a it's an absurdity that I think needs to be called such.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I really like that distinction because I think for so many people they've they've not ever been told there is a distinction there right this idea of our beliefs matter in as much as they help us bear witness to something beyond what our beliefs can actually do right or say or discuss is really really instrumental um and it and it should hopefully free a lot of people up from this recognition of being fearful of questioning things of questioning teaching maybe even at church or questioning kind of the existence that they found themselves in in a certain theological group or group of people. And it also, if I say it does another thing, it also puts the onus back not on, do my beliefs help me have salvation, relationship, whatever. But now we're asking ourselves, are our beliefs actually pushing us to some degree encouraging us making our way to be the faithful witnesses to that revelation to our community and that part has often been the part that's been in my opinion missed when we talk about faith anyways absolutely in, that's which, in which we have so much faith of that is belief that we've encouraged almost as the church we've encouraged people that if if faith equals the beliefs that we have about god And that's by which our relationship with God, our our relationship with God, salvation, whatever it is, is based. Then there's very little reasoning for me to say that part of my relationship with God is my faithful witness to those around me. And that part can easily be lacking in the way that we talk about.
1: Yeah, it often is. I think that's exactly right. I think if we use some biblical examples, some of this might come clearer And I've been teaching Luke and Acts recently, so these examples are top of mind for me. But in Luke 1, you get the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah and then visits Mary. And Zechariah, of course, is a priest, like literally in the temple, literally doing the work of a priest. The angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard, and you're going to receive a son. And Zechariah's response is, how's that going to happen? Like, how can this be? Right? And his unbelief, and that's the way it's sketched, is punished, corrected by silence. You're not going to speak, yeah, right until this child is born. Right after that, the angel appears to Mary and says, "You're going to have a, you know, pale, favored one, highly favored one. You know, the Lord is with you, and you you're going to have a child. He's going to save Israel from their sins." And she says, "How can this be?" But everything depends on the difference between her question and Zechariah's question. Yes, exactly. Right? Yep. She's just asking the legitimate, because there's never been anything like this before. Like, Zechariah, first of all, he's a priest literally in the temple. His entire life depends upon the fact that God has already done this. God has already given barren women children. Like, the story of Israel is the story of God Keeping Abraham's line alive by giving giving barren women children, beginning with Sarah, of course, right? So, Zachariah's entire life depends upon knowing that's who God is. So, when he questions it, he's questioning something central, right? He's questioning God and himself and the story he's been received. And he's the priest, he's supposed to know these things. It's very similar to what happens with Nicodemus. Are you a teacher in Israel and you do not know these things? But notice he's not damned for it. Like he's not like excommunicated (laughs) and he's not kept from having a child. He's just brought to silence. In other words, you can't do the work you're called to do until you get your heart around. This is who God is. Right. You can't fulfill. And because when he comes out from offering the sacrifice, he can't speak the word to the people, the word of blessing, the word of assurance, because his heart isn't re- reconciled to it. Yeah. Mary's question is not a question about God's character, but about the possibility of this miracle, because this has never happened before. How, how does this work? Right? We yeah, can even exactly. say it that way. How, how are we doing this? Exactly. Right. And her question is more almost procedural, like, okay, I'm in, how do we do this, right? It's not born of doubt. And that's why Elizabeth, just a little bit later in the chapter, says, blessed is she who believed. Like, Mary believes, and her belief is in her question. Yeah.
0: basically my sex education course did not teach me that this could happen any other way than one way. So
1: help me out. Right. That's exactly right. And so I think, I think it's, that's the first thing. The second thing, second pair I would come in the book of acts is the distinction between Simon, the sorcerer and Apollos. So Simon, the sorcerer, of course, you know, he's in, in the city of Samaria, the Philip comes, he's doing miracles there. The people give him a hearing but then it says, and Simon, the sorcerer, who had also done many miracles and whom the people had listened to for years, says, hey, I want this. And he becomes a believer. And then the apostles come down. They lay hands on the new believers. They're filled with the spirit. And then at this point, Simon, the sorcerer, says, give me this gift. I, I want to be able to do this. And Peter calls into question the, his heart, right? You are in the gall of bitterness. Like your heart, something's deeply wrong. With who you are as a person, you need to pray for God to right. respond to you, right? So it's not, a, it was not a matter of having the wrong ideas. Like something was wrong deep in Simon's spirit, right? And Peter calls that out. Well, a little bit later, we get to this man, Apollos, who Luke says has a thorough knowledge of scripture and taught the way of Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism of John. How how is that even possible, right? He knows the scripture. He somehow teaches the way of Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. And then Aquila and Priscilla take him aside and instruct instruct him in a a better way. They fill out what's missing. So that's not doubt on his part, right? Like he's, he's ready to learn. He's ready to be taught. And so I think those stories help us start to see that apollos just hadn't been taught well yet right right it wasn't a matter of the heart he just he knew the scriptures he was being true to what he knew and as soon as he had the chance to be taught he's open to it he's ready yeah. to learn right I, I simon think, does not simon does, is not open right to learning I, the more excellent i way.
0: think of a similar distinction in mark in the in the gospel of mark where you know a lot of the ways that i talk about faith can be often called relational positioning, Mm -hmm. right? That kind of, what you're saying is openness or just a relational positioning to God. We see really displayed in the gospel of Mark, and I think Mark is trying to show us, but oftentimes we miss it, right? When Jesus often heals the woman with the issue of blood, the the, uh, invalid with the four friends in the house, right? Mm -hmm. Where when he forgives them or heals them, there's always a familial designation you know, son, daughter, you know, your 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 faith has made you well, you know, your sins are forgiven. Right? There's this family distinction. And then Mark tells us this story about Jesus going back to Nazareth, and Jesus isn't doing any miracles there because they had no faith. Yeah. And the problem is we often couch it again as, well, they just didn't believe that Jesus could do it. So Mm -hmm. therefore Jesus was somehow limited. Versus recognizing what we're talking about, if we actually understand it properly, it's that there was no openness to the work of God. That,
1: and, and yeah, that's because in that passage, you're right, Aaron. That's exactly what the passage says. Because it says that they say, "Who are you to, to talk to us in these ways?" Like we know your parents. Like right. These are they are presumptions about him personally, are what keep them from yeah. being open. That's exactly right. I think. And, and so it's it's relational positioning,
0: right? So it's almost as if Mark is saying this group that is. Earthly family, right? Bloodline family. Jesus doesn't call them brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, right? He doesn't give them those titles, at least as Mark records it. But he does to other people whom have this openness both to who he is, as Jesus, and to God and God's work within the world through Jesus, through his persons, right? Yeah. And. And I think we often I love that way that this conversation has gone because it's really clarifying. I hope it's clarifying for listeners, even for us, just this real distinction between beliefs as that which help us navigate the world in in responding to the revelation of God and how we do that, versus faith as a relational position to God, a radical openness to God to say what Mary says, right? To say, I'm yours. Use me as you will. Right. If we can, if we can really engage in that difference, uh, which is why I love that. I know that you talk about Mary a lot. You've written about Mary a lot. I think, I think, as you've argued, in evangelical culture, we haven't discussed Mary a lot because of some fear of Mariology, of this worship of Mary, right? Um, But we miss so much when we don't focus and look at Mary as this progenitor of faith, of this radical openness to the work of God within the world. Even when we don't understand, even when we don't have the beliefs to back up what God can do and is willing to do within the world.
1: Yeah, I I think the the neglect of Mary, yes, of course, some of that is about fear of being Catholic. (laughs) But I also think it's a reflection of how instrumentalized our understanding of faith has become. In, In other words, we... Robert Jensen, who's huge influence on me, he talked about the ways in which Luther, there's a, it's in his book, Story and Promise. When, when Luther first said, we're justified by faith, it set people free because it helped them see the scripture. It helped them see their lives. It helped them recognize what God wanted for them. It set them free. But very, very quickly... That phrase, we are justified by faith, became a new bondage. You had to believe that. In in other words, they stopped believing that God justifies, and they started to believe that we are justified by believing in justification by faith. Instead of we are justified by trusting God, now we're justified by believing this doctrine. And not not just this doctrine— but a particular understanding of this doctrine. Right. Yep. And at that point you're in bondage. You're enslaved to somebody's imagination, right? Because you're not, you're not yielded to revelation or the God of revelation. You're bound to the conscience of whoever's leading you. You're bound to the imagination of whoever's leading you. And this is why I think the more the emphasis is on God and the truth the more comfortable I can be with the distinction between the truth and my ideas about the truth, right? That, that you, you're not required in order to know God, you don't have to submit to my understanding of the truth. Like ultimately at some point you're going to have to yield to God, but you don't have to yield to me and my grasp of the truth to to God. And if I insist on that, then something is off, right? Something, some, something is amiss. And I think, we, we just, we need to think a little more carefully about what doubt actually is before we start to shame people for it or to feel ashamed of it ourselves. I think, I think what the kind of
0: vision that's being cast in, in our conversation is one that really argues for congeniality in our discussions, right? That if we took this approach to faith and if we took this approach to beliefs there would be so much more congeniality and compassion and graciousness amongst Christians who might think differently, believe differently, when we recognize that, our, again, our salvation relationship with God, these things are not, are not uh, determined by proper beliefs, then we would stop having, maybe to some degree, we would stop having other podcasts of can you believe this pastor said this they're a heretic they're going to hell can you believe this person believe this right they're so wrong where we take we take the approach of i have to attack wrong beliefs because we have to defend we have to defend orthodoxy as if as if radical openness to god isn't going to help us get there anyways
1: yeah Right. That's right. Yeah. And it's I I wish I could find a way to say it as sharply as I think it needs to be said that that the moment we are in the position of policing orthodoxy, it betrays that we we're not we are not people interested in the truth. Right. We are people who have. Leveraged power but we're not answering to the spirit of truth, right? I mean, I, I think somehow we've become untrue and our relationship to the truth is, is one in which we've tried to instrumentalize or weaponize it. And nothing is worse than that. Nothing's more destructive than that. And I think what we're seeing in our culture at large is a reckoning, yeah. the beginning of a reckoning of that kind of Christianity. I mean, the the people like Mark Driscoll and, you know, we could name lots and lots of others who built a brand around enforcing a certain kind of orthodoxy. Right. And not just an orthodoxy. I mean, most of that orthodoxy was, was sexual and ecclesial. It was about church authority and authority in a home. It wasn't about God. Right. But regardless, that kind of... "Quote unquote orthodoxy policing." I mean, we're we're seeing a reckoning, and God's is not going to allow that to stand. I mean, because it's it's a it is destructive, and it's false to the spirit of truth. It, it is it's despicable, and we it it the consequences even for people like Driscoll's, not just the people he damaged. He's damaged by it, like all of us, wherever we are in that process. You can't live under those circles, I mean, under that, under those pressures that operate in those circles. Which
0: brings up a whole other conversation that we can't have right now, but we will have. Okay. I think it's something that we definitely need to, um, is, you know, basically, if I can reframe what you're saying just a little bit and just say it in a different way is that we can't use the same tactics that have always been used to go after these improper ways of believing as if we're doing something better by using the same methods. Absolutely. And we can clearly see how that doesn't work when we look at strange Christian Twitter versus evangelical, political right-wing Christian Facebook and or Parler or any of those spaces that just simply crying out Hey, your beliefs are wrong just because we we think they're different is just driving us deeper down the hole. And it's not it's it's been what? 2000 years of doing that and have we really gotten that far in a generous to use to to steal this from a book title, uh, a generous orthodoxy, right? Like have we yeah.
1: really gotten that far? Yeah, I mean I, that is a, a another conversation we need to have here. I mean, I think the it was something I heard. Uh, his name is slipping my mind. He taught at Notre Dame. He was a expert in kind of Jewish, Muslim, Christian relations. His his background was Aquinas. His focus was in Aquinas. I don't know why I can't think of his name right now, but I heard him at a conference once, and he he made a statement that seems so true to me, based on his own experience. Obviously, I don't have all those experiences. But he said that after 30, 40-plus years of praying and studying and working closely across religious lines, so interreligious dialogue, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and others, that people who are at the heart of their tradition, so Christians who are devout, and Jews who are devout, and Muslims who are devout, Buddhists who are devout, whatever, they have more in common with each other than they have with people who are radicalized in their own traditions. Hmm. So radicalization in a tradition is not devotion. The more devout you are, the lead, the less radical you are,
0: right. in that
1: sense. Yes. And the yes. more radical you are, the more you have, the less you have in common with the heart. Of your own faith and the heart of other faiths. So yeah. the more radicalized you are, the more you're dealing with caricatures of your own tradition and caricatures of your other tradition. Yeah. And I mean, nine out of every posts on Twitter, that's what that is. You've got somebody who's dealing in caricatures of caricatures. They're not writing from a place of devotion, which would put them in touch with right. the best. So, you know, if if I'm gonna critique evangelicalism, if I'm going to do it in ways that are actually going to be bring change, I have to have heart-to-heart communion with what is best in that tradition. I can't simply critique some caricature of it. Right. Because right. if I'm critiquing a caricature of it, I've become a caricature of whatever it is that I think I'm representing. Yeah. And so I think we have to come back to, and, and this is something we've passed by a few times now, but theology the work of theology should be inseparably bound up with prayer and if it ever floats free of that the moment theology becomes a gatekeeping device or a device for controlling who's in and who's out who belongs and who doesn't fall it, once it's weaponized right we're no longer do i mean we're destroying ourselves and destroying other yeah. people the work of theology if it's worth any time at all it's leading us into and out of prayer. It's leading us into and out of conversation with people. And it's rooted in learning to be open to this God and learning to be as faithful as we can be in witness to this God. Yeah. And so I, I think we all need to be called back to that. Yeah.
0: And I think that's a perfect place to to wrap up, honestly. I mean, that thought process right there. You know, you know maybe, maybe I will add... Here I am. I'm a talker. I guess that's why I decided to start a podcast some years ago.
1: I'm glad um, you did. I'm By sure the way, David Burrell is the is the professor's name. David Burrell, taught at Notre Go ahead. Yeah.
0: You know, I would almost say, in a, maybe this is a pastoral part to me to kind of go if you are dealing with doubt. Like, I, I hope that this conversation has been helpful in separating what it is that you're actually doubting this versus this you know this uh, belief, the beliefs that we have in or that God's going to do something um, versus being open to God even amidst our doubts about the theological doctrines of God can really be freeing to say, let's go down the path, and hopefully let's go down the path together in talking about those doubts, uh, whatever Christian community, hopefully finding a good one, whether it be you know, Facebook, Twitter, church, wherever it may be, but to do so in a way that doesn't create these characters like you talked about, right? To do so in a way that is not just going to say, well, I used to hold that position Now I hold this position because I doubted for a while, I deconstructed, I found this, and now I'm going to point back to the position I used to hold to and basically call it stupid and dumb, not recognizing all you're doing is being the antithesis to what you already were, right? Um, And that is, you know, to be honest, I think that's one of the hardest things to overcome. And I find myself still today doing it, whether it is on Facebook, Twitter, sometimes I can be the snarkiest person in the world. Uh, in responses when I see again, another anti-vaccine person that tries to use their Christianity as a reason for something that's dumb. And I just, I get frustrated because we seem to struggle to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, It's easy for me to fall back into that because that's a, a, I think that is the sinfulness, right? That we engage in those poor ways of engaging with other beliefs that really aren't helping us. I think there's such a philosophical framework we can talk about here, you know, and maybe we need to deep dive into this someday and make a bunch of people fall asleep to talk about the difference between modernism, postmodernism. Yeah. A realm that I think is really helpful of exploring metamodernism and and how the church hates on postmodernism, but then uses the arguments of postmodernism while arguing against postmodernism, which makes no sense to me uh, to kind of help people recognize how we can kind of talk about these things in these kind of philosophical frameworks that give movement, right. That don't
1: kind of stop us, but Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure everybody's checked out at this point, but it's just you and me talking, which is fine. I, there's a, I mentioned Aquinas at the beginning of this conversation in that same passage where he talks about unbelief in the Summa, he has a question about whether or not it's ever right to compel unbelievers to the faith, right? To use violence to make them believe, and he says, "Well, you can't." And I think he's wrong about this, but this is what he says: "He says you can't actually make someone believe, but if you can force them by violence to accept the faith, at least they're not going to lead anyone else astray." Mm-hmm. Well, I think what history has proven is <laughs> you can't do. That. The opposite is the case, right? But actually, when you start to use violence, and of course, most of the people you and I know, most of them would say we shouldn't use physical violence, but they'll use rhetorical violence every yeah. return, and right? spiritual violence, and spiritual exactly. For sure. So they're and they and they're not that far from physical violence either. Yeah, but they that idea that if we could just shut up our enemies, if we can just defeat our enemies. We may not convince them, but at least we will save our children, or we will save our neighbors from hearing their lies. But the truth of the matter is, you cannot bear witness to the truth in ways that are false to the spirit of truth. You can't bring people to know Jesus by acting like the devil. Right? Like you right. just can't do it. Right. And how we bear witness to the truth is inseparable from the truth we bear witness to. Like how I do something is what I'm doing. I mean, this is the medium and the message are inseparable right Right. and we know that and we don't live like we know it no and until that changes on twitter on facebook in our sermons in our personal conversations we're gonna in we're gonna keep creating cycles of violence thinking we're gonna thinking we're ending them i'm gonna uh, drop a bomb here
0: uh, as a thing that we will get to, uh, Chris and I, as we're ending this, I've already kind of committed the the pastoral sin of saying that we've ended and I'm still talking. Um, That's what I'm saying. Uh, Everybody left, but yeah, oh just well. you know. But uh, I'll drop the rhetorical bomb for anyone that decides to stay uh, of something that we, you know, as a side, as an aside to Chris, we need to get a guest to talk about this on what you're all saying right now is why I would say apologetics is dead and useless. Mm. And for anyone who's here still hearing me say apologetics is dead and useless, I truly believe it's dead and useless. And for some of these very reasons that we're discussing, defending the faith through rhetorical attacks is just the devil in a different way. And that's a really strong statement. But that's what I said. I was going to drop a bomb, and we'll find someone to talk about it, and we'll go from there. Um, Chris, thanks so much. Again, man, love having you as a part of this and can't wait for uh, season three to begin. I hope everyone enjoys this little, I say little teaser, but you know, I was like, yeah, we'll go 30 minutes, and here we are, almost an hour, but that's you and I, so... Yeah. Not going to fight it, right? Absolutely. All right. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you. And everyone will be back. Look out for season three coming soon.